Look at how hard I'm working. It's not my fault. Everything else fell apart. And I think that that model really is the model that we said, the hustle and the grind. It's so sexy. But what that gives us is it gives us an excuse to say, well, it's not my fault. Look how hard I worked. Yes, my marriage fell apart. Yes, I don't have good relationships with my kids, but look how hard I worked, right? Isn't that enough? And it's not enough. You know, the the goal of making sure that, you know, when when I, you know, my wife was saying, really pulled me aside and was like, hey, uh, this, we, we, okay, we've gotten to here. How are we going to change? How are we going to, you know, make sure that we're not, burning ourselves down. It is easy to set, you can set the candle on fire at both ends and in the middle. You can for a while, you know, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Thank you, Blade Runner. And the idea here though, is how, what I've come to realize again, I'm 50 this year is that if I want to be worth a shit to anyone, I still have to be able to work at high, high levels and now what I'm realizing is the bigger the engine, the bigger the brakes. The faster you're going, the more that you need a set of brakes where you can hit it and recover. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, leaders, and people looking for high performance in business and in life. Now, each week, I sit down with one of the world's most successful people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, mindsets, and habits that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. And if you want access to over 300 episodes and insights with game changers and change makers, head to whatgotyouthere.com, where you can also subscribe to my Momentum Monday newsletter. Hey guys, it's Sean, and today on the What Got You There podcast, I sit down with mobility and wellness expert Kelly Starrett. Now, after spending decades working with people like pro athletes, Olympians, and Navy SEALs, Kelly really started to think about physical well-being for everyone, people who are working a nine-to-five job, people who just want to feel better. So if you want to understand and learn some of these foundational principles, these practices, these things we should be doing and things we should stop doing to feel better as we age, to function better, to stop living such sedentary lifestyles, if you're interested in this, then this is going to be the episode for you. And Kelly has a new book out now called Built to Last, The 10 Essential Habits to Help You Move Freely and Live Fully. And that is what we explore on this episode. Please enjoy this conversation with Kelly Starrett. Hey, it's Sean, and after personally coaching CEOs, executives, and professional athletes for more than a decade, and also interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, I have compiled the most important mindsets, routines, and skills you need to cultivate to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, I've done this by creating a 19-video lecture online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, these lectures include how to overcome limiting beliefs and fears that you have, how to develop your personal routine for high performance, and mapping out what your foundational life principles and values are. Now, this course has a proven curriculum where I will teach you everything I've learned from high achievers about how to live a more fulfilling life. Now, you can get exclusive access to this course by clicking the link below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. Have you been looking for expert on-demand marketing assistance for your business? If so, then I think you're going to be interested in hearing about Marketer Hire. Now, Marketer Hire has made it easy to hire great marketers that are pre-vetted and hand-matched so you can get proven help with your business in less than a week. 
That's why it's trusted by big companies like Chanel, Netflix, and Puma, and also individual creators like myself. Whatever your marketing hire needs are, Marketer Hire has an expert waiting to help you with your project. It doesn't matter if you're looking to build out an entire team of marketers or just work with an expert marketer a few hours a week. Marketer Hire can handle your needs. And the best part, if you sign up using the link try.marketerhire.com forward slash WGYT, you get an automatic $500 credit to try out on your first hire. It's literally risk-free hiring and no downside with no long-term commitments and no cancellation fees. So go get your $500 credit today by going to try.marketerhire.com forward slash WGYT. Kelly, welcome back to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Nice to see you, my friend. I am so excited to dive into the most recent work that you've been doing, which is actually work that you've been doing for a decade plus now. But I would love to know, over all that time, everything that you've done, everything that you've accomplished, has there been a mindset of yours that you think has been incredibly impactful for getting the results you've gotten? Well, I I tell you what, uh, the first thing is it really helped for me to appreciate that the world worked on a different timescale than my timescale. And that what I've come to appreciate, maybe because I'm 50 years old this year, maybe because I've been doing this long enough and I'm surrounded by other, you know, people who have been grinding and sort of just, you know, in the trenches teaching, not Johnny come lately is not Instagram stars, but really people <laughs> out there working is that the glacial pace is the breakneck pace and that we can't always see inputs and outputs. So if we use a model for the body, the brain and the body, the most sophisticated structures in the known universe, and it's a lot of the processes of our bodies are tightly coupled and seemingly hidden from us. And so what ends up happening is that we need to instead say, here's what we know is best practices around the care and feeding of the body. And you may not even understand how all of these things are linked and connected, but that doesn't mean you don't need sunshine and feeling love and fruits and vegetables and protein and moving your body. You know, you can argue about what degree and what kind and what's the fastest way, but ultimately those fundamental principles underlying other more complex behaviors. And if you're trying to build a business or you're trying to serve humanity or do the work that you love, it really is useful to understand that it's really difficult for us to see inputs and outputs. And that what you have to say is, hey, I'm going to be hyper-local. I'm going to continue to do the thing that I'm passionate about. And I really have to be independent of what's going on. I, I can't use those outside metrics to understand if I'm successful, if my work resonates, if I'm actually moving the needle at all. You know, boy, I see a lot of people with millions of Instagram followers and, um, you know, you don't get a dollar for an Instagram follower and nor is that a successful long-term business guaranteed. So that really has, has been useful for me to say, slow down. Let's make sure that we appreciate that this is a long, long game. And I'll let you know how the game is coming out. Maybe in another 10 years, I'll have an understanding. There we go. Yeah. You mentioned slowing down. One of the, the aphorisms I must say to myself twice a day is slow down to speed up. Uh, I just got to constantly pound that in my head. I, I'm wondering for you though, how do you how have you developed the trust within yourself where the payoffs aren't coming, but internally you're like, no, 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 this is the right path. The, the path I'm going on, there's some truth mm. here. I need to stick on this even when you're not seeing the metrics you'd hope. You know, I think it really comes down to, 
you have to like the work you're doing. There we go. That's the only way. And I think if you don't like the work you're doing, then it's, it's making money. It's fame and adoration. It's, you know, outside validation. I really like the work I'm doing and it gets me, you know, 10 years ago, I started, I mean, I remember waking up, you know, supple leopards. We just said, uh, pre-show is 10 years old. It came out 10 years ago, the first book. And I remember laying in bed with my wife and saying, well, what if this is all I got? What if I don't have any other ideas? What if I'm done? You know? And she was like, what is wrong with you? You know, like you're a maniac. And, um, what I'll say is I really like the work that I do day to day and my own curiosity, my own drive to communicate and also to collab with other people, to be around other people who are doing the same thing. When 10 years ago, when I, if you'd said, Hey, what are your goals? They would have been aspirational and just shitty goals, you know, more shitty than my goals. Now, now my goal is like, well, I want to have a really good relationship with my wife and kids. I want to be a better, I want to have, I want to run everything through this filter. Does this get me more time with my family? Yes or no. And everything else really starts to become very crystal, crystal clear. The other thing that I think has been really useful is in terms of sustainability, in terms of motivation, in terms of inspiration is that I am surrounded. The work I've done has given me access and friendships to some really extraordinary coaches, extraordinary thinkers, extraordinary scientists, extraordinary people. And that's, that is enough to keep it going too. Is that like the reason I get invited to the table is the work I've done and I want to stay at the table. And I look around and see the incredible work that my friends are doing. And we're also like, are we, are, is it okay that we're all here together? Is this all right? You know, do we belong at this table? What's happened though, is being able to work alongside really brilliant minds that has been fulfilling. So those two benchmarks for me, does this get, does the work I'm doing I, three, I like the work I'm doing. I could do it forever. Mm. Two is, does this get my family more time together? Three is I get to do dope shit with dope people. And it's that simple. And really now be patient because you can't see what's coming down the, the pipeline. So you better be busy and you better be prepared for thinking a thought, for advancing your your sophistication around the progress and the things you're doing, if you're going to end up, you know, still being of service and having something to say at the right moment. Yeah. Pretty hard to compete with someone when they're saying, no, 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 this is my lifetime strategy. I'm going to do this till I die. And you, you, you can see the, <laughs> you amount of, the, the amount of work you've done. Uh, well, it, we're even seeing, we're seeing, uh, there was an article in the New York Times about um, influencers retiring because they, it was too much stress. And yeah. I was like, oh, substitute the word influencer for entrepreneur. Or anyone who's you know trying to run a small business by themselves, and suddenly you're like, yeah, it's not for everyone, and it really is incessant, and that's why you better find satisfaction because it, it feels incessant. I was just on the for driving here. I was on the phone with one, one of my friends, Jen Wiederstrom, who is a phenomenal coach. She's one of my best friends, and we were just like, does any of this matter? What are we doing? You know what I mean? Like. I, we're losing our minds sometimes, and yet we kind of talk each other off the ledge and yeah. we move on. Yeah, <laughs> believe me, I've got, I've got those people in my life that uh, they get that phone call pretty frequently as well. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually curious about the filters you were talking about and you just kind of saying about, does this give me more time with my loved ones, with my family? What led to you developing that filtering mechanism? Realizing real fast that you can outwork your way out of your family and mm -hmm. outwork your way out of not having meaningful close relationships. Not, and you can say like I'm taking care of my family by doing this, but you know, 
it's gnarly. It's, I mean, Juliet is my, is the CEO of our company. My wife, brilliant attorney, world champion, superstar, best training partner. We have two kids with two businesses. We were spread thin. I mean, as thin as human beings can get all my hair fell out. You know, I'm not sleeping very much realizing that the things that get you here aren't always the things that keep you here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that, that's like I'm not trying to just you know shout an aphorism here, but the idea is that you will find periods in your life where you are working at unsustainable rates, and then you have to touch base and say, okay, what this is unsustainable. I know it's consciously unsustainable. I'm not going to go till I flame out and force a crisis, which I think is a lot of what we do. A lot of the lead athletes we work with, we have this concept called plausible deniability, which means that if I get injured or have a failure or something happens, I, I can turn around and say, it's not because I didn't work hard. See, meanwhile, the working hard is the thing that set you up to be unsuccessful at the race. You didn't, you didn't taper enough. You didn't rest enough. You didn't, you didn't maintain your relationships enough. You weren't taking care of your sponsors. You weren't, you know, you didn't have meaningful connections. You were basically like, look at how hard I'm working. It's not my fault. Everything else fell apart. And I think that that model really is the model that we said, the hustle and the grind. It's so sexy. But what that gives us is it gives us an excuse to say, well, it's not my fault. Look how hard I worked. Mm -hmm. Yes, my marriage fell apart. Yes, I don't have good relationships with my kids, but look how hard I worked, right? Aren't, aren't, isn't that enough? It's not enough. You know, the the goal of making sure that, you know, when when I, you know, my wife was saying, really pulled me aside and was like, hey, uh, this, we, we, okay, we've gotten to here. How are we going to change? Mm -hmm. How are we going to, you know, make sure that we're not, burning ourselves down. It is easy to set. You can set the candle on fire at both ends and in the middle. Yeah. You can <laughs> for a while, you know, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Thank you, Blade Runner. And the idea here though, is how, what I've come to realize again, I'm 50 this year is that if I want to be worth a shit to anyone, I still have to be able to work at high, high levels and now what I'm realizing is the bigger the engine, the bigger the brakes. The faster you're going, the more that you need a set of brakes where you can hit it and recover. And you're not going to be able to go on a weekend retreat and your friends are doing other things and they're watching TV and messing around. That's not your life, but it doesn't have to be your life. But I have a sauna in my house now and we have a cold plunge. And I figured out that like I'm either on the full gas or I'm on the full break. And that seems to be enough. And sometimes I need to be on the gas a lot more. And sometimes I need to be on the break a lot more. But if you're going to be good at your job, it's not good enough to get one good year out of it. Uh, we heard, uh, I heard Jay-Z being interviewed by Oprah. And, and she was like, what's the definition of excellence? And he defined it as performing at a high level for a long time. And I cannot find a better definition that works for me. Mm. Is that we're seeing people get hot in the world and work at unsustainable rates and then they flame out or, you know, they got hot and the, the wave of the internet eye went past them. And then I'm like, what do you got? And I'm much more interested in people who are so competent. We call it post ego. You get to a place in your life where you're post ego and suddenly you're really worth it. 
you're you're good at your job. You you have something to say, and that really takes until you're in your 40s and 50s. All that 20s and 30s, everyone who's in your 20s and 30s, it's all practice. Like you, what you'll be like is like, oh my god, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm like, now you finally are done being a beginner. Now you get to have the interesting conversation. So all of that, I think went through where we started to stumble into these essential filters or mechanisms by which we could really say, what is the most important thing? Can I be at my daughter's, you know, water polo game? Do my wife and I feel connected and close in spite of the fact that we are running around like maniacs? Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode, but before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, and my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course. And you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. Hmm. So let's say this was a mental shift, both for you and your wife. It looks like your, your wife luckily was the charge here in making this change happen. With all of the people that you've worked with over time, what have you seen them do to allow the mental shifts to take place? Even if it's not this specific thing around oscillation and yeah. really like slowing down, just overall around the adaptability to shift their mindset to something that's going to be more beneficial. The first is that I think the average person who comes, comes when you, some, you get a health scare, something's not working. You go through some trauma and realize you don't have any man friends or woman friends because all you have is work friends. And uh, I think most of us, the average person stumbles into something where it just doesn't work anymore and, and you have to reevaluate. And that's, that's, I think it's a common experience. That's what we were told athletics, I'm doing everything and then I get injured or I do something and I lose. And then I have to say, well, what's going on? Right. Instead of saying every single day or once a week, what is the mechanism where you're saying, how's it going? How, how do I judge what's working here? Is it ROI? Is it my PL? Like what, what is the piece? Is it my number of subscribers? Is that, is that the way that I'm going to, you know, evaluate my worth to myself and to my friends? And I think, um, Ultimately, if you start to say, and, and and I'll say that in our health and fitness vertical, we've done a much better job of people are getting more sophisticated. You know, Andrew Huberman's one of my best friends. He's a very good friend. What I'll say is he's done a really good job taking and synthesizing integration of information to get people into better practices. Where we're starting to see that, like, hey, people are realizing at home, that's where I've got to hit the brakes. But as an allegory, um, you know, a couple of days ago or a week ago, uh, a post went up with about talking about sleep. And what I said was seven hours is our minimum. Eight is really where the magic happens, where you can really radically change your body composition, get out of pain, grow a body, learn a skill, put on muscle mass. And that thing went viral. And you would think that I said the most outrageous thing. When I said was seven to eight hours of sleep gives you the best performance out there, unequivocal. And there's not a single piece of research, body, Mayo Clinic, WHO, 
world. I mean, just choose something. The CDC, sleep a cat, everyone's seven to eight for, for kids, seven to nine, right? But what you saw was with thousand comments that I was crazy, that I was out of touch, that four hours of sleep does it. That's all I need. What do you do with that much time? And what you realize is that we really have sold people this idea that the best way to, to identify is that it's two in the morning, you're in the weight room grinding mm -hmm. for your family. What I'll tell you is that we've run this experiment over and over and over again about how do you become durable and maintain a sustainability that you're, you don't end up with a heart attack or impending health crisis or get sick or, you know, something that happens. You, you can buffer a lot of stress for a long time. What we see though, is again, in our community, we're starting to see people eat more whole foods. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see people begin a breathing practice, get hot, get cold, do more zone two work, be mindful. Those things now are becoming part of the kit, which really helps people to say, hey, I don't have to have a crisis to start to realize that what I'm doing may not be sustainable. Yeah, bring some of that awareness to some of the, these key things. And you and I both know, I mean, the, the basics are free. They're not sexy. So they don't get that type of publicity. Some of these I other know. things do. So I'm wondering for, for you, because I think you do a masterful job in synthesizing down some of these, these base camp behaviors, the key things, the key drivers to overall well-being here. So what are some of those, those drivers, uh, the key ones for well-being that you really put a lot of focus onto? You know, what's interesting when we, we say that is what we can begin to ask is what's not essential? You know what I mean? Like people are like, what's the one mobilization? What's the one lift? What's the one superfood? And what that, what that really says is what do I not get to pay attention to? I think there are more keystone behaviors. And what I like to think around this is that you'll start to see that there are certainly keystone behaviors. One of them is sleep. One of them is walking. One of them is fueling. And what you'll start to see is around each one of those sort of essentials is a sort of a congregation of behaviors. And that as you move out, those valence around those, the behaviors start to interact and overlap with other ones. We start to see that if I move more during the day, then I'm going to achieve enough non-exercise activity fatigue and create sleep pressure so that I'm actually more likely to go to sleep. But if I don't sleep well and I don't really feel like moving and I have a job that doesn't have me move, suddenly I don't have the some of the building blocks that are going to help me fall asleep, which means that I may hit the bourbon. And then how does bourbon affect my sleep? Well, that, that, pretty unequivocally, bourbon isn't great for sleep. And suddenly you're like, well, I had these three bourbons last night because I was so stressed and I couldn't fall asleep. And then I woke up and how did I wake up? Well, I had five coffees and a five-hour energy drink and a monster and a Red Bull. And then I had one at four o'clock because I was so exhausted. And what you start to see is, oh, okay, it gets messy really fast. But when we pin down to start to say, even, you know, pan back and say, okay, two and a half million years of humans walking around being humans, what are the things, what are the minimums, what are the inputs required for my human body, not my modern brain that's jacked into AI and doing all the things, but what is it I need? Well, I need sunlight on my face. <laughs> I need to be around other brains. I need to move. And I didn't say exercise. I just said move. I've got to sleep. I've got to eat fruits and vegetables because I need micronutrients and fiber. And I need protein so I can have healthy connective tissue in a gut. So suddenly, what we see is as soon as we start to hang some essentials for people, 
then we give them permission to start to backfill to their culture, to their society, to their family, to their own traditions. If I say, you know, I need you to eat this much protein and get these fruits and vegetables every day. That's an everyday practice. Then you can be keto, carnivore, paleo, right? You can do whatever you want, low fat, high fat. I don't care, but you're vegan, vegetarian, but show me you can actually hit the minimum amount of protein in any way that you want to. And then we're starting to get better data right now. If we look at the human experience in terms of the physical practices writ large of general human beings, and we ask, okay, how's it going? Well, we can look at obesity rates, diabetes rates, injury rates, chronic pain, substance abuse, ACL, I mean, surgeries, depression, ADHD meds. Choose something that you give a shit about around you and your family and then ask, is it working? And I think that's where we see the really disconnect. You know, 2 million views on some 20-second clip on getting seven, eight hours of sleep. And everyone denies what we're seeing in terms of the experiment we're running. And the experiment is inputs and outputs. And those inputs and outputs can be tightly coupled and can be hidden from us. But until we really start to get real about creating objective measures for people and following what the data suggests is happening to us as a culture, this is all bullshit. And that's the problem is right now we're like, it feels good. And, you know, some of the comments on there are, hey, you're triggering me. I feel sensitive. And now I feel all the sensitivity around you sleep shaming me. I'm like, am I sleep splaining here? Telling you need to get seven, eight hours of sleep. That's like saying you need sunlight on your body. Well, I don't like sun. The sun doesn't make me feel safe. So I'm not trying to belittle anyone's culture or family, but there are things that make human beings work really well. Yes or no, one or zero. You can then start to say, hey, I'm below that metric for a while, or hey, I've got this covered, but let's go ahead and expand the sort of modern vital signs to these objective measures. And then in 10 more years, we'll measure, is it helping or changing anything? Because right now we've been running a trillion dollar industry about fitness and podcasts and wellness and the things. And I'm like, it's not working. We're all getting a failing grade, except for the people who are in this tiny vertical. Kelly, one of the things I really appreciate is just your ability to think and how you think through and navigate certain things. What I mean by that is the majority of the people, they don't come at it from this approach, this angle. And so I'm wondering for you, what do you think it is that you do well that allows you to zoom out, Go around this thing and get a better understanding no and perspective. No idea. What I know about myself is that I've always been a gestaltist thinker. My mom, look, don't roll your eyes, everyone. My mom is a psychologist. She literally was a psych professor. And I grew up in the back. She's a single working mother. I'm a single child. And my mom didn't have childcare. And I would go to her lectures and I would sit in the back of her lectures. I've sat in 10,000 psychology lectures. What I know about my, my mom's dissertation was meta memory ability in children. What do children know about their own memory processes? So I was a little bit too meta early on. But what I learned when I mean meta is aware of awareness of my awareness, right? Yep. And I have always learned best when I understood how the relationships worked, how the components worked. That is my own thing. My only skill besides being able to crush all the cookies. I am a cookie <laughs> crushing machine is that I'm decent at pattern recognition. I'm pretty good 
at seeing data sets or seeing things move or seeing some behavior and plucking out relationships out of those things. As a coach, remember, Juliet and I think people forget that we owned a commercial gym for 16 years. I coach people you know, weekly and daily for 16 years. And pretty soon you get to really get good at what's essential. How do I get someone to the result faster? What's the, what's the fastest way? What are the relationships between these things? And I, for example, I'm a physical therapist. I'm just a classically trained physical therapist and a coach. I don't want to talk to you about your body composition. That's actually not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is performance. What's interesting to me is you feeling safe and self-actualized in the gym and going out and using all these skills and tactics to go do whatever you want to do, sports, win a gold medal, whatever it is. But I have to become interested in nutrition because if I don't speak the basics and have some of the understanding, I'm not going to help you heal. I'm not going to help you recover. I'm not going to help you optimize. I'm not going to be able to change your body composition. I'm not going to be able to help you fuel. And so suddenly I'm like, okay, I'll become competent enough over here. And then I'm over here. I'm like, oh my gosh, it really is about sports psychology. That's where like, I better really bone up on this. I had tons of communication, tons of you know motor theory learning. I have all of that in my grad, you know, formal grad school education. But in order to be a good coach, I have to be a generalist. And to be a generalist, you have to understand how these things fit together. Otherwise, you're just a hyper-specialist and you'll end up tripping over yourself when the thing that you're doing no longer works. Mm. You mentioned ha having the, the single parent. Is that your mom being single parent? Is that the driver for you? Uh, well, I mean, early on trying to get, trying to, trying to make it up for my, like my missing father. I'm sure that was a, a driver. You know, my, my father was the great Santini college quarterback, deeply damaged by his father. You know, we have just generations of alcoholism in our family. I was like, it's got to stop with me. I'm only going to have daughters. I mean, I made that like edict when I was 14. I was like, well, I just obviously we cannot be hand trusted having boys. So I only have girls. <laughs> I have two girls now just called it. Want everyone yeah. to know. And um, what I'll say is uh, it's not unusual for people who have some kind of trauma or some kind of driver thing to be successful and to, I'm not that I'm successful, but to say that, you know, I deep down some part of my root DNA is trying to prove something to someone who's not here. I mean, for sure. And that, that can be a reason to get up and to take risk and do all those things. Um, what I'll say though, now is I think I can't pin that on my dad anymore. Like I'm a 50 year old man, you know, I have children, I have an 18 year old daughter. Um, what I'll say though, is uh, the my staff, my friends, the things that I'm doing, I find very, very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And as long as that works and I continue to have something to say, we'll go. And I hope someday I can just disappear and not help anyone and just like go work on a farm. I really am like, the goal is to, I think, is to contribute to the, you know, I think human beings are what's most important. I think pure science is great, but um, I think that the highest calling of science is probably to inform the humanities and transform our society and culture. Whether or not we have anything to say to do that remains to be seen. And I'm not trying to be you know, small about this. I'm really saying that I'm not sure what it's going to take for the neighbors in our neighborhood to start to eat more fruits and vegetables and walk around more, but you know, we're, we're working on that. 
So the people who are listening to this, let's say, you know what? They're like, hell yeah, let's do this, Kelly. Let's really make this happen. I want to dive into a few of the things I think you do a really good job of. One of those constraining our environment. I think you do a really good job of thinking about how can I shape my environment for success so I can actually foster and develop those habits that are going to be more beneficial. How do you think about constraining your own environment? And start with uh, the idea that, and let me just give some people some context where I, where I came up with this concept or where I was first exposed to this concept. It's not my concept. I'm in physical therapy school. It's 2004. I'm working alongside the occupational therapist and they have people who've just had head injuries, cerebrovascular accidents, strokes. And those people are coming into the university to, for treatment. And, and for therapy. And if someone has an affected side, like their left side is, was, is affected by the injury, the right side functions pretty, pretty well. It's, it's impact. We say it's the less affected side because both sides are affected. But that's the side that everyone uses because it, it works still relatively well. What they do is that they actually will put a, an oven mitt on that hand and then tape it up. And they'll force someone in that kind of post-injury window to use the more affected side. They'll force them to have to use the hand to manipulate the world, to feed themselves, to brush their hair, to manipulate things. They'll force the brain to work because this hand is now wrapped in a glove and I can't use it anymore to do anything. This hand has to do all the work. And the first time I saw it, I came home and it was like, Julia, this was sort of mind blowing because as we're finding out, of course, willpower doesn't work. We have, a, we're making how many decisions every day? How many choices do we make? And at the end of the day, I'm like, just give me the bag of chips and the Netflix as I'm smoked and can't make another decision. I can't summon any willpower. So I came home and was like, Juliet, I think there's something to this. And we're realizing now, of course, that the real magic is in behavior change. Look at the work that John Berardi did at Precision Nutrition, high, big influence for Juliet and I. And it turns out his whole nutritional approach was looking at how to get people to eat the right thing or to eat better or make different choices around their nutrition by constraining the environment, by looking at the DNA of any behavior change or anything we're trying to do as humans as a behavior change model. And so really suddenly you're like, okay, sports psychology in here, you know, how do, how do I, you know, am I a three day Carl Rogers? Like I can do it. I'm perfect for three days. And then on the fourth day, I'm just back to my own self. (laughs) But the simplest for everyone is thinking, if I, for me, this is the example. If I want to eat cookies, I'll buy a bunch of cookies and I will crush the cookies and no one in my house is safe until I eat the whole bag of cookies. If I don't have cookies, I don't eat cookies. So it's one or zero. I don't like have a, one of our friends, CrossFit Games athlete. She had like a sleeve of Thin Mints in her, like in her freezer drawer. She's like, I'm saving these for when I'm done with the CrossFit Open. And I remember thinking like, you're a maniac. Like you're crazy. If those things are in my house, they're gone. So I just can't have them in the house. You know, what she knew worked for her. You know, she could do this delayed gratification for me. I'm like, I just can't have it in the house. So we can begin to think then with the same level of sort of application, how do I have a behavior or how do I influence behavior by setting up the environment so I don't have to make a choice? So that the right choice or a better choice or a different choice is my default. And an example 
we work with a company called Very, like Veridesk. It used to be called Veridesk. They make standing desks and dynamic workplaces and, and much more. They're thinking about environmental design as it relates to workplace. And one of the things they discovered in their old office is they put a trash can by everyone's desk. Everyone just used the trash can by the desk. If they moved the trash can 20 meters away, people had to get up and walk to the trash can, which encouraged a whole bunch of things. You had to see other people. You had to move your body. They saw productivity go up. They saved a ton on trash cans. But it's an idea of, oh, okay, how else can I sort of do the right thing? Yeah. Uh, another example might be you have little kids and you struggle every day for the kid in the morning to choose clothes. So you lay out your clothes the night before. That's an I, idea I of goes, Kelly. <laughs> environmental <laughs> yeah. constraint. And suddenly when you start to think in those terms as that is a valuable tool, you'll end up behaving or de defaulting to behavior that you're trying to encourage for yourself without having to take another leap or risk. So if there's some task you want, you have to do it first thing Monday morning when you're freshest or whatever. And you can start to think and apply this any way you want. We just happen to apply it towards the body, not necessarily to business. Kelly, I love how you think about the constraining of the environment. I would love to know, are there a few other ones that you've done that you think really help lead to the cascading effect of some of those keystone habits that you think a lot about? Uh, one of the ones that I think is really worthwhile for people is to move more during the day. There we go. Um, if you, uh, could, if I could give you a pill that would drop your all-cause mortality for your family by 50%, would you take it? Yes, of course you would. And that's called walking 8,000 steps a day. Really, you get the lion's share of benefits and you can drop all-cause mortality by 50% if you move your body 8,000 steps a day. Mm. 10,000 steps is great too. Maybe it's only 61%, but I'll take the 50% and I'll take a level of walking steps where I can get that in pretty effortlessly. So mm -hmm. I'll take the what's the most likely where I'm going to see the adherence. And my doctoral work ended up being looking at adherence in people with chronic low back pain. What keep kept people from doing what they said they were going to do, and we both agreed were best for them, that was really the thing that sort of just blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I could be the best physical therapist in the world, and if a person doesn't do what yeah. we both agreed that they're going to do, it's all horseshit. So if you walk more, a lot of things will start to happen for you. And the least of which is that you'll recover from your exercise more effectively. You'll burn more calories. Um, that'll give you way better body weight control than any other exercise regime. So if you go on the Peloton three hours a week versus walking 8,000 steps a day, guess which one wins in terms of calorie consumption? That is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And what we start to say is, well, how do I create a, a physical practice around my this thinking? And I, I'm not saying that you need to give up your hour of exercise to go walk. I'm just saying there are little places in your day where you can get a lot more steps. And your phone, it tracks all your steps. So it's you you can't say I don't have a, a track a stepper. I have one. It's built into my phone. Yeah. The average American's taking three to five thousand steps a day. And morally, it's like closer to three thousand steps a day. And one of the reasons this is so important is that your lymphatic system is the sewage system of your body and it is woven in to your muscles. So your, your lymphatic system drains all of the dead cells, all of the broken down proteins, all of the waste that can't be filtered out into the bloodstream goes to your lymphatic system. It's like a highway of sewage that then gets dumped into your kidneys and liver, right? That's, that's what the, the lymphatic system is. So if you've ever flown on an airplane and you look down and your cankles 
are there. You have ankles that are swollen. Oh yeah, that's that's me. a that's that's a, all <laughs> yeah. of us. That's a failure of your lymphatic system to be pumped mm. by muscle contraction of your calves. So what you're seeing is congested tissues. You're seeing swelling and congestion back up, and it's creating literally edema in your in your body because you're just not moving. So what do you need to do? You need to go walk, yeah. right? That's how simple. Yes, you can get Normatec boots. Yes, you can compress. Yes, you can elevate. But what you really need to do is just walk more. And if you're trying to just push the three to four liters of lymph that your body creates every day through your system, that's all based in a walking movement. And how clever of two and a half million years of evolution where humans had to walk around to feed themselves, walk around to reproduce, walk around in the environment to say, hey, look, let's just put this waste system into the movement system because when is there going to be a time where human beings don't move? That's ridiculous, right? Suddenly, welcome to the time where human beings don't move. And in fact, we're in defense of not movement. Like, oh, I have to move. I, yeah, yeah, right. I hate moving. <laughs> it feels terrible. So what we can start to say is, let's take out exercise out of this. And someone, one of our friends said, well, why do, it bums me out. You don't call walking exercise. And I said, hold up. We call it non-exercise activity. And we're not only think it's so important. We're moving it out of the realm of exercise and into the realm of this is vital for human being and human physiologic function. Do we have to put breathing air as a thing that you have to do every day? Well, no, I can be better at that. I can meditate at that. But breathing is something that happens. We're putting walking on the same order of magnitude of importance as breathing. And if you want to start to untangle very complex problems in your body, let's go ahead and begin to create some benchmarks. And, and walking is one of those steps or one of those sort of key metrics that you'll see will have huge influences down the line, whether it's falling asleep or staying asleep, whether it's burning more calories and having body weight control, whether it's decongestion, whether it's right not like non-threatening movement to the brain whether it's i walk really fast and that turns all the you know the the sort of growth rewiring neuroplasticity of my mind you got it. you just dude why aren't you walking this is the easiest thing to do in the world and it's free and you'll probably get some sunlight on your face like huberman says and you'll probably have to see your cranky neighbors and that's really important and pretty soon you can leave your phones and go for a walk with your wife in the evenings what i do with juliet and we have a 2000 we walk to the end of our block and back it's 1750 steps takes us 18 minutes it's just really the end of our block and back we do it after dinner and boom it wasn't one more thing we had to do you leave the phone at home yeah. You, you losing your shit here, Kelly? Uh, I'm no, curious. Though. I don't get credit for it anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah, you know, and, and uh, we use it as a time to just reconnect. What's going on? A little, a little human interaction. Yeah, and one where we're not, uh, where we can walk and be in silence or thinking or you know chit chatting. It really creates an opportunity to to connect that way. The same way, like the rides home from the practice. I love those with my daughters because I can sit in silence or they can run their mouth or we can, mm. you know, talk. It just creates a framework where I now don't have to sit down and say, wife, let us talk yeah. in a formal meeting. Like we can just go for a walk together. And for a lot of adults, that may be the only time with your partner during the day where you weren't solving a problem, running an errand, taking care of a business thing. You've got 20 minutes after dinner where you can reconnect in a meaningful way. Yeah, so important here. I love that you hit on that. What about one of the things a lot of us struggle with at a desk all day, sitting down? How do we reduce mm. some of that 
immobility and some of that stiffness that's a good buildup over time. <laughs> you know, when you go see a doctor and the doctor's like, I see you've worn a hole in your kneecap running, you should stop doing that, right? That you're like, well, screw you, doctor. You know, you're the worst. This is how I define myself. <laughs> the doctor's actually saying a really reasonable thing, yeah. right? Hey, what you're doing isn't serving you, but we're in the doctor's office. I got six minutes to come up with a diagnosis. This is not my problem. That's really what the doctor's saying. Yeah. The same thing is true about your seating. You're taking it for granted that you have to sit all day and you don't. There'll be plenty of jobs. We work with A-10 fighter pilots. We work with bus drivers. We work with people who have to sit long commutes. Harvard, let's spin this back. Not let's Let's establish some idea that sitting isn't bad and standing isn't good. That's that's a, a myth, right? Sitting is the new smoking. It's a phrase put out by James Levine of the Mayo Clinic, who is an obesity specialist. He specializes in adult obesity and population obesity. So imagine his view is, holy moly, something's happening with the population. We're inactive. And it's so gnarly that we're seeing that it this inactivity is on the akin on the same level of really gnarly behaviors. So that's where that comes from, just so everyone knows. But Harvard defines sedentary behavior as any time our bodies fall below one and a half metabolic equivalents. That met, you might have seen on old treadmills or old Stairmasters, was a unit of measure like a watt or an erg. It's a met, and that metabolic equivalent tells us sort of how much energy our bodies are using. Well, if we sit down in a chair, we tend to fall below one and a half metabolic equivalents, sitting on the couch, sitting in the car, below one and a half. And one and a half and less is where a lot of the sedentary physiology kicks on, where I start to burn sugar and not fat, where I start to you know, shut down my lymphatic system where my heart, like sugar starts to circulate in my body more because my legs aren't using it more. Well, there's a whole bunch of interesting sedentary behavior things. What we can say though is, hey, we're trying to limit total amount of time underneath that one and a half metabolic equivalents during the day to six total hours. Well, that's a pretty reasonable amount of time is sitting on your butt, but that's the whole day. That's in front of Netflix. That's sitting in the commute. That's sitting it. So suddenly you realize you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just used all my credits up just doing stuff where I don't didn't get to sit down. Like I just had to like, I had to sit. And that's where it gets really gnarly for people because the background sitting load is pretty high. And that means that we end up defaulting into spending a lot of time in inactivity when the goal is to be as active as possible. So let's define it. If I have to sit, in a low chair, I'm going to sit at the edge of the chair where I have to use more of my trunk to stay upright. Notice I'm not talking about posture. I'm not talking about text neck. I'm talking about how do I get more muscles to work? Like, blah, right? I am talking to you from a standing table. I'm perching against a bar stool. So right now I have my feet on the ground or one of my feet's on my ground. My other foot is up on the stool and I'm perching. Perching, it kicks me up above one and a half metabolic equivalent. So I can sit here feels like sitting, but I'm not sitting. And if I'm super exhausted, now I have two legs on the stool. Now both legs are on the floor and you can't tell what's going on beneath. Do I even have clothes on below this desk? You don't even know. Yeah, no idea. So <laughs> the idea here is that's a great environmental constraint piece. One of the useful tactics or ways that we think about 
inputs and outputs with our athletic athletic populations is that we call a training session or we call a, um, uh, a game or an event has a session cost. And I'm not, I'm not saying like you wear out your knees, kid. That's not what I mean. What I mean is if we do an amount of work, the next day I can measure your readiness. I can look at resting heart rate. I can look at heart rate variability. I can look at central nervous system readiness through a tap test. I can look at your desire to train. I can look at like oh, soreness. Right. If you if you jumped into a 90-minute sprint on a bike all out, the next day I test you again, you're gonna suck. You're gonna be worse, right? That's session cost. And what that does is it allows us to say, well, what are the sets of behaviors that I can deploy that allow me to reduce session costs so that I can actually work harder, adapt more effectively, be fresher, right? That's I think a really good way to say if we say recovery, that's like recovery. I'm not trying to recover. I'm trying to adapt to the stimulus and I'm trying to reduce the cost of that brutal session, but we can actually flip out and not say exercise or competition. Instead, we can say work stress, life stress, deadlines, new baby, red eye flight, right? Asking my boss for a raise, any stressful event, sick family member. How do I reduce the session cost? And one of the ways that we can start to deploy that thinking is that if I'm sitting a lot, that's going to have a session cost that I'm going to have to be much more deliberate about in terms of managing all the sitting. Chances are you're going to be become deficient in your ability to extend your hip effectively. I'm not saying that back sitting causes back pain at all. What I'm saying is that if you sit a bunch, I can measure you over here on your hip extension, yeah. getting into a lunge, and you're going to suck more than if you didn't sit all day long, right? So suddenly we can start to say, well, how do I diminish the session cost? Well, the first thing we can do is say, let's interrupt marathon bouts of sitting. So do we have some choice in how we can move? Do I need to set an alarm? Do I can If I come into my work and I always have the standing desk and a bar stool, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what. And again, notice that I'm not standing, I'm perching. I'm sitting all day long, but I'm above that one and a half metabolic equivalence. We can start to say, hey, on those days where you're hypersedentary, really important that we get those 8,000 steps. Mm -hmm. Really important that maybe I do some soft tissue work in the evening to take care of my the stiffness that might result from that. And suddenly what you realize is we can make this work. This is not a you know life or death situation. But what doesn't work is marathon bouts of sitting, not having movement minimums, not getting enough sleep, eating hyperpalatable foods, being super stressed all the time. I mean, that's what we're handing to people. And we're like, this is the grind. Good luck with that. Because yeah. it's not working. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering how you gauge, because you've worked with so many high performers, you also kind of bring that approach. How do you actually listen enough to your body to understand when you know what, you should be throttling down a bit, as opposed mm. to, you know what, you can really push it here. You're just kind of let's just call it not being tough enough in this scenario. I'm just wondering how yeah. you think about that based on the number of high performers that you work with. And I know most of them are coming with that mentality of go, go, go. Well, one of the things we can do is we can start to get baselines. So, um, you know, what's cool about all of the tracking. So I'm wearing an aura ring, not because I needed to tell me how much calories I burned. I like, cause I looked at, I run an experiment on my sleep every night mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know, I ate late. I didn't eat late. I intermittent fasted. And then I eat a chicken before I went to bed. I, you know, I had some caffeine too late. Like, I just love that I get to kind of nerd out on some of the sleep. Hey, I take this magnesium. I slept better. I took this magnesium. I didn't sleep better. Ultimately, when we're, 
working with athletes, we're trying to get them to feel what their bodies are telling them. If you go to bed and you try to get eight hours of sleep, let's say more sleep than you're currently getting, because I don't want to trigger you with your like precious, I know you're a unicorn. Um, and it turns, so my daughter, my 14 year old grabbed my aura ring last night or two nights ago. And she's like, I want to know what my resting heart rate is. So I was like, cool, rack this up. Well, she's like, whoa, I was in bed for eight and a half hours. I sleep for eight and a half hours, but I only got credit for seven and a half hours of sleep. And I was like, yeah, it looks like you were up for an hour. And she was like, I was awake for an entire hour. I only got seven and a half hours of sleep. She was like, what? And I was like, welcome to the game that, you know, you wasted an hour messing around in there for some reason. You went to the bathroom, da, 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 you turned over all those times yeah. you're awake. So when we start having people track things initially, it can be really useful for us to understand inputs and outputs. So if you're going to bed at 11, getting up at seven, right? What we can say is, well, somewhere you're somewhere between seven, eight hours sleep. That's great. That's a, a bench line. Let's see if we can get you in bed a half hour earlier this week. And let's see if we can get you just half hour more sleep, 20 more minutes of sleep yeah. every night. Well, ultimately in the morning before you check anything, this came from one of my coaches, Brian McKenzie. I was using an early Omega wave, which is an heart rate variability. That's This is like 12 years old now. And I had to put these leads on my head. And my, it was very complicated. Joma Jameson has done a lot better job of making this more tangible now. But Brian said, hey, before you get your metric of what's going on, go ahead and write down what you think your score is out of 10, right? And guess what? That subjective writing a score is as valid as any of these scores. And I'll tell you a story about this and why it's so important that we get back, we use technology to get back to feeling. That's really crucial to understand. One of our friends is a woman named Kate Courtney, who's one of the greatest mountain bikers, greatest American cyclist ever, world champion, world cup winner, incredible human being the night before a race where she had to win a race in order to win the overall world championship. She got a terrible score on her whoop, told her not ready to go. And she was like, well, that's wrong. I'm going to feel great. She's like, it's bullshit. So she ignored it and then went and won the world championship. And then she called up whoop and was like, Hey, I think there was something wrong with your algorithm. And they're like, no, 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 no. She was like, yeah, because I'm the best in the world. And my, your watch told me some bad information. So I ignored it and went on. Well, lo and behold, there was something wrong with their algorithm that they fixed and refined. And they're, they're always doing that. But here was the best athlete in the world getting some information that did not jive with what her understanding of her process was. Instead of freaking out, she was just like, well, that's a piece of data that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So either I have a problem or it has a problem. And it turned out it had a problem. Mm -hmm. So when we get to people to start to be aware of their inputs and outputs a little bit at a time, mm -hmm. the same way if you came and were coached by me, I see you three to five times a week for an hour. Pretty soon, you're going to start to understand what the key KPIs are, right? You're going to understand what feels good and how to sort of guide those things. But that's really where we start is that we're sometimes using this tech to say, how do you feel? Juliet and I have this thing called desire to train. And this is our internal alarm clock screaming at us that we love to exercise. And when it's not there, something is deeply wrong with me and I'm smoked, about to get sick, under recovered, stressed out. And I'm like, huh, I don't wonder if I should not smoke my body today. 100% of the time, I guess I'm like, man, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that thing. And then the next day I wake up and the desire to train is there again. I'm like, oh yeah, that really was there. So I think what we have done is that we've 
put enough caffeine and enough THC and enough bourbon and enough poor sleep and enough things that we self-soothe and porn and Netflix, and we can't feel anymore. I think, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make this about porn, but the idea is that, man, we love to self-soothe and get those serotonin hits, and it's hard for us to really understand inputs and outputs. I think that's that creates confusion for us about where should I lean on the gas or not. Well, one of the things I appreciate about what you do in your work, even in your book, the new book, Built to Move, is it's taking responsibility for your journey. And you even have some of the tests you need to go through to understand yourself. Like you were just saying a minute ago, you're listening yes. to your body. It's not, no, 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 let me let this coach tell me this and let me let this wearable do all. It's let's use our own brain here. Let's listen to our own body. And I just wish more people would hear that and go, you know what? Yeah, this is my journey. I'm responsible for this. Let me take responsibility for my health, my fitness. And I really love the work that you do because you show people better avenues to think about these things. And then also practical steps of how to both figure out where you're at baseline and then how to implement this stuff in your life day to day. Um, so yeah, Kelly, the book Built to Move, I really do appreciate the 10 steps that you guys lay out in that. Anything else that people should know about the book? I have a few more questions for you, but I just want to make sure because I know people are going to be really interested in hearing how they can take their overall well-being to the next level. If you're listening to this, I guarantee you've got a couple of blind spots. And you'll have spots where you're like, yeah, I'm getting good results. But if someone shows you your blind spots, because let me just tell you anecdotally, we've handed this to a lot of world champions who are like world champions who are like, oh my God, I wasn't eating enough protein. <laughs> oh my God. And when I did, my knee, my knee pain went away. And I'm like, isn't that weird? You know, or I, I walked more or I slept more. But you're probably, our goal is to be 10 out of 10. These are very favorable vital signs. They're not, you don't have to be a super person to be able to hit these vital signs. But they really give you a test about what's going on. And tomorrow, you get to replay. And tomorrow, you get to replay. And tomorrow, you get to replay. Um, the people listening to this podcast, I need you to be responsible for your family and your household. And that means that this book could be an entree in for people who aren't as obsessed with their health as we are, who don't like to exercise. This is not a book about exercise, and it's definitely not a book about dieting. It's a book about, like, we have a chapter in here about fueling and the things you need to do to make sure you have a healthy gut and all the all the building blocks on board, but it is not about body composition per se. So we want people who are into this to become the super node where they can reach out to their family and their friends, because all your friends are already asking you questions. Hey, what do you think about this keto shred? What do you think about this three-day juice cleanse? What do you think about this Chris Hemsworth's workout? And what, I'll, what I want you to say is start here and then we can have the next conversation. So that's what I want people to know. We even have a 21-day free companion video course at builttomove.com to get people on board. If we, and you can hear me, the bitterness, the state is too large, the nation is too large, the, the, the county is too large, the neighborhood and the household is the functional unit of change. Until we get this idea down, this hyper-locality down, we're just going to keep spinning our wheels. So you can, you're can you the person who's going to change in your in your neighborhood. If not you, no one. Yeah, I love it. Let's create some ripples out there. Kelly, one, one of the things I enjoy in your podcast, The Ready State, you guys inter interview world-class performers. Obviously, I'm obsessed with that. That's what I love to do. And, and basically about like how to stay and get ready for anything. I would love to know, have there been one or two just foundational stories that have really impacted you? I'd love the story you told a minute ago about not listening to the whoop and just listening to the body. Any other stories throughout the years? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this, of just impactful things that, that you've heard 
or different stories that you've uncovered? Ooh, you know, um, that's a, a fair question. I'll probably have to do some sort of thinking about it. But what I'll, I want people to know is I am and listen to and watch obsessively what the best athletes and coaches in the world do mm. and how they do that. And what I have learned is someone has probably solved the problem that you're struggling with already. Just look around and you may have to go outside our field. You may have to ask some different question. You may have to read a book and something that doesn't seem like it relates, but those things really end up sort of being of the most utility. Uh, in Delta Force, for example, if you want to stay in leadership, you have to go out and get an MBA or do something or get a PhD and then bring those skills back in the army. So they actually need you to leave home and go learn something to come back and make the organization better. Do that, but in your not in your field. So go out, read something about sports psychology or mindset or nutrition or something about entrepreneurship and say, how can I apply this to the thing I give the most crap about? And pretty soon you're in this really open loop where you get to watch and observe and participate and, and refine and iterate. And it is really fantastic. Yeah. But what I want to do here right now, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen. So Kelly, let's, let's do this, right? Like your approach to your craft and how this is applicable to any entrepreneur listen. Listen, you said the internal drive is there. If your internal drive is there, passionate about what you're doing, you're going to get smoked because Kelly Starrett is going to be doing this for decades to come, right? So that inner drive is there. That freaking curiosity, like, are you kidding me, Kelly? It comes out with the amount you're learning, constantly trying to, to find the best in the field. And then you're deconstructing that. It's like, let me take these different pieces apart. So if you're an entrepreneur and you can't see that applicable framework to your field, it's like, come on, you, you've got to see the picture here and what Kelly's doing. So I, I love you pulling from, from different domains and seeing how it can work for you. But Kelly, clearly you and I both love doing this long form interview, sitting down with someone we can learn from. Say you could do this, sit down, have an evening with anyone dead or alive. Who would you love to interview? Um, I think I'm in a phase of my life where, here, let me give you an allegory. Um, Dune is my favorite book ever. I'll just bit that way. The first time you read all th the first three, we'll say, gets a little weird. But uh, the first three, um, I thought, oh, this is about the hero's journey. I get this. And I love that because I read it when I was a teenager. The second time I read it, I was in college and I was like, oh, this is about deep ecology. This is super, super subversive. And the third time I read it, I was like, oh, it's about the dangers of institutions and institutionalism and the, you know, the codification of process, right? And what I'll say is the things that I'm interested in are sort of this, I use the word valence, but now people who are taking a swing at thinking about these problems at a very large level. Uh, E.O. Wilson is a total hero of mine, his sort of systems approach to thinking, um, you know, his driver of consilience. Uh, I feel like there are so many people who are doing really interesting work today that I don't even have to go back in the past. But what I can say is we've been running this experiment in my field long enough that I get to ask these people all the time and slide into their DMs. Um, you know, I am constantly curious 
one of my things that I'm currently sort of mini obsessed with is sports psychology and the mindset, because I see it as the greatest limiting factor to our capacities right now. Um, Michael Gervais, you know, finding mastery. He's one of my, you know, idols and I get to go on his podcast next week and I'm so thrilled and he thinks he's interviewing me, but I'm interviewing him. So that's the way I want, I want to think about it. But in the meantime, um, you know, man, I'm really grateful to be part of a community of very interested people. So people who are curious and enthusiastic, they're my people. I love that. And then the, the listeners know we're a huge fan of uh, Dr. Michael Gervais. He's been on twice as a guest, once interviewing me. So yeah, I cannot wait to hear that interview with you. But Kelly, this has been a blast. The book is Built to Move. It's out now. Where else can the listeners stay connected with you? I know you do a ton socially through the website. Where can we direct them? We are at uh, Built to Move. Uh, oh, sorry. You can find more information about the book, builttomove.com. We are The Ready State. Um, the app is on the, it's the Ready State app. We have an app about taking care of your body, but all of the, the information of what we're doing is uh, thereadystate.com. And, uh, you know, you probably have run into some of our work at some point in your life. You know, we're starting to see that some of the things that were really innovative and, and revolutionary and subversive 10 years ago are just now par for the course, which is a good sign. Yeah. And all that's linked up in the show notes, but Kelly Starrett, can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. I appreciate it. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.